I am your host, Lawrence Rosenberg, and this is the Alpha Human Podcast. Our guest today is Rusty Furman. Rusty is a 27-year British Army veteran who spent 15 years with the SAS, the British Army's elite special forces unit. Rusty has been involved in some of the SAS's most dangerous missions, including the planned attack on Argentina during the Falklands War and the SAS's covert operations against the IRA. However, Rusty is most well known for his actions in Operation Nimrod, the May 1980 Iranian embassy siege in London, where he was a key figure in the SAS's storming of the embassy as the blue team leader. Rusty authored a very popular book on this historic event entitled Go, 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 which gives a gripping account of the siege which culminated in the SAS rescuing 19 hostages and killing five of the six terrorists. The book has recently been turned into a major motion picture entitled Six Days, starring Jamie Bell, airing right now on Netflix. And I've seen it, and I have to tell you, it's a must watch. Rusty is also the author of The Regiment, a detailed portrayal of what it was like for him to be part of one of the most renowned special ops forces in the world. Rusty, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for the invite. Nice to have a bit on there, I suppose, for a change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. Yeah, thank you very much. And I hope they enjoy the podcast when it's finished. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure everyone will. Um, so, you know, just kind of getting into the SAS a little bit because in America, everyone knows the Navy SEALs, right? Um, everyone has heard of Delta Force. Uh, but my understanding is that, you know, and when I grew up, you know, everyone had heard of the Green Berets. That was the, that was the American Special Forces. So when I was a kid, that, that was big. And there was the film, uh, of course, uh, back in the day, I believe, with John Wayne. So it made special, yeah. special operations, right? And the special forces are really uh, sexy thing. And, and, you know, people want, you know, kids wanted to grow up and be Green Berets. Um, but we always heard when I was a kid growing up in the 70s, we always heard about the SAS. And, you know, maybe it was around the time of when you guys made your big splash and came out in the open, Right, your coming out party really uh, was with that em with, was with that embassy siege in London, um, but before then, not much was known about the SAS. But it turns out, I believe, if I'm correct, that our own Delta Force, which I guess is the closest thing uh, to the SAS here in America when it comes to special forces, our own Delta Force, I believe, was actually styled. Uh, on the SAS, right down to the selection process. Is, is that the case? Yeah, it's the case. Um, funny enough, um, I did selection, summer selection for the SAS in 1977. Um, so I know firsthand because on that selection, we had the old Hamshank, you know, the Yank, and we didn't know who he was. We didn't know who he was. He turned up and it happened to be Bucky Burris, um, a fellow that you probably know anybody yes. know, that knows anything about Delta. He was there right at the beginning. That's right. So Charlie Beckwith, he had the idea along with another guy, I can't quite remember his name, but they had to send somebody to the UK to do the training 
because they wanted it styled on the SAS. How else could they do it unless somebody turned up for the training? So July 1977, I can tell you now, when we started, Bucky Burroughs came across from the States. He was an officer and he was well liked on the course. We, mm -hmm. we had a really big course because we, um, and he must have learned a lot because it was when the parachute brigade in the UK was being disbanded and we had a lot of disgruntled paras running around, didn't know what to do. They came on SAS selection. I was a commando myself and I came on selection. We all met up. So Bucky Burroughs hung in with us all the way through. And then finally, when that course was finished, I think Delta was set up round about November, um, November the 19th springs to mind, 17th maybe. Mm -hmm. So right at the end of that summer selection, is when Delta Force were formed. And I know that because I was part of it. So that's when it formed, and it was formed the same year, 1977, as I joined and passed selection to get into the SAS. Incredible. Um, so you have um, a really interesting history because, you know, the these days, a lot of the stories we'll hear is that People go into the military, at least in the U.S., um, those that want to become part of uh, special operations or who want to become an operator. Um, there, there's so much information on it now, so many books, so many films. Um, it's great, obviously, for recruiting. If you're looking to find the best of the best, uh, then, you know, certainly there's this attraction now for those that want that kind of excitement and adventure to join the military with the intent to go into the special forces. But I mean, my understanding of your story is that, uh, I mean, you're a 27 year veteran and you were in the military in the UK uh, from the time you were 15 years old. Uh, so, you know, it'd be great to understand a little bit more about what inspired you to end up joining the SAS because you certainly didn't join the military to do that. No, I didn't. I was more or less, taken to the army recruiting office as a 15 year old. I was heading downhill, I'll be honest. Mm -hmm. um, not far to go either at that age, I'm, I was going downhill. Uh, anyway, I was taken to the army recruiting office. Um, never thought for one minute, you know, that I'd get in to the military, let alone the junior leaders regiment, Royal Artillery at that age, which is 15 to 17 in those days, um, was, was a junior soldier. Spent two years, got trained. Basically, I didn't want to be there. If I could have had 50 pounds, UK pounds, back in 1965, I'd have been gone. I'd have been history. I'd have gone out of the army. I couldn't get it. A lot of money then. Stayed in. Then I went. Football was my, you know, football. I was a tracksuit soldier, basically. <laughs> I loved it. Okay, if I could get in tracksuit every day through whatever way I could do it, that's what I did because I love sport. And that's what I did. I ended up playing all sorts of sports um, in the early days. And then I got itchy feet. I didn't have really any parents or anything and no family to fall back on. The army became my family. Mm -hmm. um, without me actually knowing it, I didn't go there and say adopt me, but I was quite well liked and I got on with a lot of people. And as that progressed, I then took a bit of interest in the military. Okay. 
because I knew that if I wanted to move somewhere, I'm going to have to do some hard work. Didn't like the thought of it, but nothing is in my day wasn't given to you on a plate. You had to go and get it, forage for it. So, yeah, I represented the British Army, which is a good standard at football. Mm -hmm. Got there, had gone from the artillery um, into 29 Commando, which is based a few miles down the road from where I live these days on Dartmoor in England. Um, so I spent four years there. What is, what is 29 Commando? 29 Commando is the, um, you've got the Royal Marine Commandos, yeah? Yes. And then you've got 29 Commando Royal Artillery, which are there to support the Royal Marines. Wherever they go, they need an artillery unit. So a battery, four batteries normally in a unit, would go with one of the commando units, 4142, 45, 40 commando. You know, you know, so that would be our side of it. And of course, they would have an engineer side, 59 commando. Okay. Engineers. So that's how it was then. So that, that's how it was. And once I got to 29 commando, it wasn't long before they saw something in me, which I didn't see in myself. They said, right, we want you to go on the training wing. You're fit, you know, you do this, you do that. So I'm now coming up through the ranks. Um, and I find myself going to the training wing. That actually meant I could be in a tracksuit as much as I wanted because I was teaching young commandos coming in to be, go and get your green berry, guys. I've got mine. Right. Uh, so, so that was, you know, that was that. And, but after a couple of years, I just got my itchy feet and there was only one more place to go. And that's in 1977. The only place I could go to improve and do what I wanted to do was the Special Air Service, the SAS. So I asked, it's voluntary. You can't be posted there. It's voluntary. I asked if I could do a course. Um, and that's, they said, yes, fill in the paperwork. And then in July 77, having done some pre-training the year before, I turned up in Hereford along with some good mates of mine um, from other units, and we all went on to the SAS course together. Not everybody passed it, but it was like, it was something I wanted to do, and I did pass it at the first attempt. So it's, you know, it's very difficult, as I understand it, uh, to pass the SAS. In, in fact, I understand that, so if the... Again, here in America, everyone knows how difficult selection is for the Navy SEALs, right? But the, you know, everyone's ringing that bell to quit. Uh, and it's incredibly difficult. They have a 75% fail rate. But as I understand it, the SAS has a 90% fail rate. Is that, is that true? I'm quite sure what it is these days. But certainly when I did mine, generally speaking, um, it was... Um, a ten wave, a ten percent pass rate would be considered fair. Um, so the the one selection we did, as I say, and that was when Bucky Burris was on, who mm -hmm. set up Delta and stuff. That had a bigger pass rate, but they had a really good standard of guys on that, and more of them. So you would expect. I can't remember what it was exactly, but. It, 
even to me, I would think it would have been in probably 20% pass rate, something like maybe double what it would normally be. So, but it was the standard and the quality of guys on there. They came from good units, fit, wanted to do the job. And of course that helps when you've got to put your head down and then look up. And of course that's what happened. So we had a, a good pass rate on that. But generally speaking, yeah, you're right. It's not, um, it didn't used to be more than around about 10%. And there's not very many, um, there's not very mem many members of the SAS. I believe there's only between what, 400 or up to 600 at any one time. Yeah. yeah as I say, I, I can talk mainly about my day and four squadrons. If you had um, a maximum of 60 in a squadron, there's 240 couple on the outlying side, 300, maybe 400 would be a good a guesstimate, if you like, um, in, in those days, yeah, for certain. Yeah, that's, so, So, I mean, that's not a lot, again, uh, in, in the States, there's, you know, thousands of uh, SEALs and uh, Green Berets. Um, and, you know, again, I, I know from speaking with a number of uh, special operators that selection, no matter where, no matter what it is, whether it's Green Berets, Delta, Navy SEALs, that it is incredibly hard. And the only way you're getting in there is if you're the hardest of the hard. Um, but again, there's always been this mystique about the SAS. And uh, I'd love to know why, again, back in your day, um, and, and by the way, I don't know, you know, there's, I heard, you know, there, I know there's a show in the SAS that's, uh, on the SAS, it's very popular right now. Back back in Britain, um, right? Who who cares? <laughs> um, you know, I've I've heard your comments on. <laughs> I mean my comments. I'm telling you now, I really am, and I'm sad for the people who really want to get involved in it. Um, it really is that bad. It's shocking, but it's a pretty program for people to watch. Yeah, I mean, if you join the SAS based on watching that program, you're going to get, you know, you're in for a rude awakening. You're going to get your ass handed to you. Uh, well, let's put it this way. I've, I've just turned 70, right? You know what? It take me good for 70. Standard. It take me a week to get to their standard, right? And I'd, <laughs> I'd walk through it myself right now. <laughs> it is that bad. All right, so let's go back to the real deal. Um, in your day, so with, with a 10% pass rate, um, with a bunch of really, um, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, tough guys, motivated guys in the beginning, with, with only a 10% pass rate, so maybe 20 some odd guys coming through it um, at a selection, why is it so difficult? Well, if it was going to go through it. If it was meant to have lots of lads joining, well, it'd be the same thing, in my opinion. It'd be, well, anybody can do it. Mm -hmm. That's how it was designed in the first place, way back when they used to use small units, four or five men, maybe. Mm -hmm. all, all the jobs, you know, that, that other people didn't want to do. And, of course, the, the difficulty is not just the physical side. It's up here the mental side as well. You've got to have that mental toughness and mindset. When the chips are down, you're the one who's going in, right? That's what I volunteered to do. 
nobody put me in there and nobody put anybody else in. It's totally voluntary. So if you volunteer for something, you have to put your chest out and say, right, I'm going for it. And the will to win and the motto, who dares wins, I think explains an awful lot. So how did you, okay, but how did you go from someone who, if you got your hand on a, you know, on a pinky, on a 50 pound note, if it, that you'd be out of there uh, when you were a kid, how did you go from that to I'm all in and I'm ready to do whatever it takes? I grew up. I grew up on my own and I was forced to make certain um, command decisions, if you like, about what I was going to do. Once I'd been in the forces a while, I realized, realized that there was a pension at the end of it. So it helped, you know, there was a couple of times when I nearly walked out the door, which I could have done for free later on, but I didn't. I started then looking from this little scrawny runt. I was only five foot two and weighed about seven and a half stone um, when I went into the military. And then all of a sudden I'm up there at five foot 11 fit. And I, I was doing what I never realized was there in the military to do. I, I wasn't educated that way. Special Forces, the SCS were about. I did, you know, I'd been, <laughs> I say that I've been in the SAS three years before I knew it existed. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and that was in, yeah, until the embassy came up. That was the first real, apart from the Northern Ireland trips and stuff, of course. Mm -hmm. Watch what I say about that, as you can well appreciate. At the yes. And of course, it was, for me, it was something that I, did, I, I could have dreamt of as a kid, but I didn't know about it. But then I found here I was with long hair down here in the military doing this covert stuff. And it was all the stuff I wanted to do. And early on, I didn't know about it. When I found out about it, I went for it. And that was just my own, nobody pushed me. That's my own willpower and what I wanted to do. And I had to strive for it to get there. It wasn't given to me and nothing was given to me after that either. It almost sounds like destiny that you ended up there. Possibly. Part of it, yeah, I would think probably. I never planned it as a, a kid, that's for certain. But then when you, what was happening in front of me and where I could go and the quality of guys that were around me. You know what? When I was in the SAS, I'm 15 years, right? Mm -hmm. I don't ever remember not wanting to get out of bed and go to work. It's amazing. There's something I can tell you that now. I wanted to be there. So what I meant, what I meant earlier when I said, why is it so difficult? I understand why you'd want to weed out anyone who isn't like you. Um, and obviously they do a very good job of finding the rusty Furmans of the world. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious as to what, Maybe not why is it so difficult, meaning what is so difficult about the selection process? Meaning oh, what do you go through? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, it's to most people, it's actually not what they're used to. Okay. You're in a normal army unit in, 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 in the military um, when I was serving. And then you hear about something. And in this case, for me, it was the SES. 
but the difficulty was actually turning up on day one and then you always have a look around who's around you know and you have a look at these these lads and stuff some of them are six foot six some of them are small right in between and then you think right but the one common goal is you all have to do exactly the same to get through it isn't for everybody the long days the you know the drive out to the brecon beacons a lovely place to go <clears throat> get out the vehicle and then you go right there it is <laughs> you've got your first hill in front of you and then you're off it's it, physically it's demanding physically it's tough you're on your own and you know there's something at the end of it and they have all these timed test marches in the last week well you don't know what the timings are that you have to pass mm. okay they don't say you've got four hours to do that no what happens is you get out different weather conditions you know and let's be honest it can be brutal out in the uh, breckens it could be red hot like it is today so each day you had to physically prepare yourself and you had these heavy weights and weapons to to carry and get from grid reference or rendezvous point rv point whatever you want to call them to rv point where somebody would go right there's your next rv you're not, allowed to, you're not allowed to write it down or anything. They show you on a map, you confirm it back to them. You're here, you've got another 12 kilometers maybe to go, uh, or seven, eight mile, whatever you want to call it. And you're off. And that is where your total believing in yourself, your, this physical state of your mind and body there's no lifts, there's no help, that's it. And if you don't make the time, the instructors just go, you're off. And they take you off, go back to camp, pack a kit, and you're gone. And so when we got back each day, it was a look around like this <laughs> to find out who was left. Right. So that that's the difficult part of it. The, I found the physical side, I'm not being funny, I didn't struggle on the physical side at all. I really enjoyed it um it might sound a bit masochistic but actually i enjoyed my physical side of it it was just wondering you upset somebody maybe looking over your shoulder some of your good friends have gone and then you think god i'm still here deep down you're now pushing your chest out ready for the next one aren't you right like, you've got to beat me and that's it you know that that's that was it they and, and not everybody's capable, unfortunately, of doing that. Have you have you always had a competitive spirit? Yeah. Anybody who knows me will tell you that. Yes. No and, question. And and for the it is now. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so for anyone in America who's not aware, um, what are the Breckens? The Brecon beacons. Um, uh, in in Wales, there are um, <clears throat> for those is uh, they start more or less on the England Welsh border. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's a it's a, a range of mountains with once you go onto them they're inhospitable at the best, but 
you know, we weren't allowed to run around tracks and roads and stuff, you know, so you're cross-graining, which means it's difficult on your body. Mm. However, because of their situation, uh, two and a half hours from camp, so you go out there in a vehicle, not too far away, get a full day's work in there, and that is where we did the majority of the selection itself, including when Bucky Burroughs was there, he can vouch for that because it can be really, uh, once that cloud and mist and rain comes down, it could be anywhere in the world. And they're quite high, not the highest in the world, obviously, but a very, very good challenging training area. I can tell you that now. And then you also, you also go through uh, jungle training, right? Also <laughs> Is there also desert training or is it? Jungle training would be the normal follow on from that. So you've worn your body down as much as you can wear it down really on selection. And then you've got a day or two to pack your stuff and get cleaned up. And then we were off out on the plane to um, Belize in Central America, which is a dirty jungle. Mm. It's, it's not clean, it's full of all sorts of stuff. But once again, or a training area but when you get there you're worn down you, you know after a month on selection then you start again you know the climates of the jungle don't you it rains and thunder and lightning all night every night at about four o'clock in the afternoon so you're not getting a lot of sleep even if you want to go to sleep you don't get a lot of sleep but then the following day you're back out and it's physical uh, and it's hard work and once again, you've got people falling by the wayside, pack your kit, get on the air, aircraft, back to the UK, back to your unit, they're gone. They don't hang around. It is like that. So you've lost a few on selection. You then start losing them and people are around you. <laughs> they're gone. And yet the, the numbers are coming down considerably. Anybody who gets injured normally would get second chance if they wanted it if they were taken off it's, it's very difficult for whatever right. reason so it, it's fair but it's hard and because it's fair and hard it's the same yet again for everybody but not a lot of people like the jungle once they get there they don't like it you know um it's just different me i was okay with it <laughs> I got bitten to death and all, but actually, you know, part of the game. <laughs> mm. so yeah, you, difficult. You love the training. You, you yeah. love being tested. Yeah. So, so I understand you also go through something similar to uh, the, the U.S. Army Special Forces uh, Survival Evasion Resistance and Escape School. I understand you guys do some kind of combat survival and resistance program where uh, you guys for a week are hunted down and and interrogated. Um, you know, I know the Green Berets do a mock uh, POW camp. So did you have to go through something similar? Um, well, once again, when, once you've come back from the jungle, yeah, you know, there's nobody wider than this. You know what I mean? They're, they're like shredded in body. But the, the fun bit was that you're right. They, they take you in, strip you before you go out, the numbers that are left, 
and give you what is a, a great coat in those days, which is a really, old, really hairy, horrible thing to wear. Uh -huh. String around the middle, um, the same sort of thing on your trousers, um, a pair of boots, what you stand up in, and they take you to the training areas and dump you. In my day, it was in two, two together was maximum, and you'd be dumped in all different places. You'd be given um, tests to do to get to certain rendezvous points. Mm -hmm. With that, you'd have a hunter force, whoever it would ha happen to be, they, their job would be to hunt you down with dogs. And if you got caught, you go in for interrogation and it works like that. Um, and it, it's quite, it's quite um, uncomfortable, let's say, <laughs> at times. Because of the weather, you've got no magic waterproof kit and stuff. You weren't allowed to get caught in the barns or outside the training areas. You're gone. Okay, it, it, that that was it. We, we knew what would happen if you tried to cheat. It wasn't worth it. So you you're going all around these areas, meeting up for RBs. They might give you a sandwich if you're lucky. Right. Um, that would be it. And then the next day, if you meet up, um, I mean, I used to try and travel mainly at night for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. Unless I smelt a rat like a dog was coming or something, we'd have to make a different plan. But generally speaking, it's left to your common sense and you're learning all the time, obviously. But you had to evade. And I never got caught on mine. Um, eventually, at some point, they pull you off and say, right, that's it. It's no duff. That's what they call it. Mm -hmm. This is the end of this part of it. And you're not quite sure whether they're, you know, you don't say anything to them, right? You, mm -hmm. They take you away, blindfold you, they take you off to a camp somewhere, and it starts like that. And in the camp, you know there's other guys around because you can hear, hear them, but you can't see them. And you stood against walls, stress positions and stuff. Um, and that goes on for, and, until they decide would take him in front of an interrogator. Um, I think I went in front of two or three, um, male and female, and they try to get information. And you stick by the big four, the number, rank, and name, and date of birth. You can't really go wrong. Um, and that's how the game is played. You start inventing, you start talking. You'll be off. You won't make it. It's, I know people who actually I won't mention any names, but mm -hmm. I was playing chess with the the guy who was trying to get his information out of him. Playing chess on a cup of tea. Your mind does things to other to people when you're in that stress position. Mm -hmm. Of course, I make no bones about it. But you just got to think: number, rank, and name, date of birth. That's it. You start giving stories and a bit of a cover story, it's never going to work because they'll turn it against you somewhere. And that's not what you're taught. You're taught number rank, name, date of birth. That's it. And that's how I got through. Um, I went through that. They took me off, took me back, blindfolded as I've just gone through 
Um, and that lasts as long as it lasts until somebody grabs you on the shoulder, pick you, take your blindfold off. Right, this is it. That's the end for you. Now you don't know if you've passed or failed. <laughs> okay. I think the first thing is, yeah, what do you mean the end for me? Uh, you know, have I, have I failed? Um, and that's your first thought, isn't it? That's human nature. But that is it. What these mean is you've finished, done what you wanted, the time's run out, you're now going to get on a, on, on a Bedford, which is the, um, the old three-tonner type vehicles. We had four tonners, whatever they were. And you see other lads come in on there and give you a cup of tea and stuff. It's all over then. It's back to camp to get ready for the next part. So your body is being worn down from day one, you know, selection all the way through to the jungle, all the way through to the combat survival, as we called it, and E&E, &E, escape and evasion. And yeah, when I look back and when I thought back on it, once I got through, I was really chuffed with what I've done, you know? Mm. I but guess didn't want to have any thoughts anywhere of failing. I didn't, I didn't have that. I, I, I couldn't stand it when I saw the other guys, who, the, you know, when you see them before they disappear and heads are down on the chest and stuff, you know, I didn't want that. Yeah, I, I guess, um, you know, that, that inner competitor within you, that, that, that determination, again, that's what selection is is meant to uncover those that have that uncommon trait because everyone talks a big game until right until they're going through the kind of thing that you're going through and that's a simulation but then when you have to go through the real deal like operation nimrod and uh, god knows how many other missions you were on they can't afford to have someone second guess themselves and break so um I think that's a good segue for us because I, I want to get into Operation Nimrod. Um, I, I love the movie Six Days. Um, oh, I really did, and uh, uh, Jamie Bell's great. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so on April thirtieth, nineteen eighty, six terrorists stormed the Iranian embassy and took twenty six people hostage. Um, so the first thing is, and again, I know the story, but for the benefit of our audience, why did these terrorists, um, why did they raid uh, the Iranian embassy and take those people hostage? Well, the, the story is that um, nobody knew at the time that it was a Saddam Hussein-backed operation. Mm. Okay. So that was interesting. Um, the six terrorists were brought together. Um, obviously, everything happened, came across to the UK. And if you look at Kazakhstan and places like that, it was an all-rich part of the southwest part of Iran, just where Iran and Iraq's border is. They come down, all the way down to the Gulf almost. Mm -hmm. And because it was on the southwest, it was Iranian. It belonged to the Iranians. But the Arabs from Iraq, surrounds they wanted to go there because it was all rich right so there was an awful lot of them there and this obviously pissed off um you know iran so the secret police would go out collect some people kill some leave some to tell the story and of course what they wanted to do in iraq was 
send the terrorists over, make a statement, bring the world's attention to what's going on in Kazakhstan or Arabistan, whatever you want to call it. Right. And that's exactly what they did. And they made a hit. You know, they got the world press. And had they done that on day one, day two, and handed themselves in, it would be a different story. Right. It, there would be no film six days. Okay, it would have been two and a half days or two days. <laughs> but that's how and why they were sent to the UK. One mission, their mission was to go to the Iranian embassy, 16 Princess Gate uh, in London, Kensington, take it over by force and hold the hostages, hence world media coverage on the streets of London, right in the center, heart of the capital look what we've done and let's be honest did it make the headlines yes big time and that's where it all started and so when you first heard uh that uh, the sas your that your um team was <clears throat> called in to handle this what what yeah. went through your mind had you ever been on anything like this before a mission it, never like happened. This. it never happened in the UK before. This no, was but a, have you ever, had you ever been no, on such a mission? No, Northern Ireland stuff and, and stuff right. like that, yeah. But this was different. We were on the counter-terrorist team. We'd only taken over a couple of weeks before um, from D Squadron. We were B Squadron. Right. And we took over from D Squadron. And then this happened. We were, to some degree, lucky that everybody was there because we were due to go on an exercise up to Northumbria, right up the north. And we were due to do an exercise over the bank holiday weekend, which is the weekend we're talking about, 30th of April, which was a Wednesday through to the 5th of May, which is bank holiday Monday. So that was when somewhere in there, we'd have been gone on an exercise. But in fact, we got the call on the little bleepers we used to carry on our belt or in the pocket with the operational call out instead of a training call out. Right. And then everybody piles into camp to find out what's going on, get a briefing, what little briefing, no mobile, uh, no social media in them days, if you remember. And that's what we did. And that's how we found out. And then we found out it was an operation. Well, nobody wants to go on an exercise if there's an operation going on, right? And that included me. So that's that's where we that's how we found out. I was quite in inner, yeah, I'm up for this one, yeah. Right, so you, you, were, you were excited. Yeah, and I wasn't a team leader at that time. I was only a team member. I became a team leader later on before we did the assault. Right, uh, and I, I saw that in, in the film uh, yeah. where you were asked to step up and you were like, That's right. yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, I was curious, what. Was the SAS called in because it was an embassy and technically that's foreign soil? I mean, had the SAS ever operated on, on British ground before? Well, I shouldn't say that. Um, what I should I say, say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, why, were they called, why were they called in? Because we were the counter-terrorist team and it was deemed a terrorist incident. 
don't forget this was not our operation and a lot of people don't understand that from day one it was a met police operation supported by the sas our counter-terrorist team i so see to be hoisted in the police are already involved in it before us we then get the call we then go down eventually to join in with the police and we're supporting them because at this moment in time there is no um there's nothing on british soil for example there's not been proof of murder right stature the prime minister the best one i've ever known she was in charge well she got a backbone you know i wish they yeah. had a day i'll be honest um and she was in charge met police had the operation did a great job we supported them to start with and that's how it went on yeah the reason i ask is because i guess now we're so used to um the fact that the police they have their own counter-terrorist teams right to operate in situations like this it's it, you know it's rare like to you you wouldn't think that the american um the, the navy seals for instance would handle any kind of terrorist action in domestically within the country and so when you think of the sas you think they're going on all these foreign missions um and there was there was a point in the film where the negotiator max vernon um he when he's told that the sas are queued up um he was like are you fucking kidding me like he was you know in the film at least he he was he was shocked right so it's like what's yeah yeah max vernon is a very good friend of mine he's um 84 in a wheelchair now okay um, yeah great great guy um i never met him for 37 years until the film and wow. during the siege never met him after the siege i met him whilst the film was being made um prior to coming out in 2017-18 so max is like that because he was the head negotiator and there comes a point we might come on to it in a minute but he tells me that he felt like a failure mm. because he didn't talk it to an end right what he do is he got us six days of valuable time to plan prepare rehearse what we were going to do if we were ever needed to go into that embassy if it had gone in in day one let me give you an example uh -huh. being bloody i can tell you that now it would have been we'd have won that it had been bloody because we had the time that was given to us by max doing the negotiating and drawing out the timelines then six days went quite quickly hence the name of the film six days but i can tell you now he did a tremendous job without that it could have been a slightly different result but we were ready after six days i can tell you that now to go in and rescue the hostages yeah he's portrayed as having been uh, shattered by the um by not having been able to to kind of negotiate through the the process as opposed to sending the team in but that's his job his job his is job, to negotiate right? yeah and he may have felt like he let himself down but he didn't in one way he didn't negotiate but in the other way 
the hostages were released. Right, and that were yeah. rescued, shall I say? Um, that was the aim. That was the aim of the rescue of the hostages. Was the mission? He helped indirectly, if you like, or directly, gain us that time because there was no time over those six days which were wasted. We were doing something concrete just in case we had one plan, then we had another plan, then we had a plan if that plan didn't, you know, it, it was an invaluable time. The amount of training, at least from what we see in the film, the amount of training, and they can only show so much, that you guys were doing um, yeah. during those six days is, is, is phenomenal. I mean, you trained to take out the terrorists on a bus, yeah. um, and so they kept showing how you, were, how you would work that bus. Yeah. Uh, how to go in that way. And then when that was shot down, you trained to storm the embassy by building, you guys were building models and a replica of some of the embassy, which you guys were trained. For, first, like, you know, which, which would have been harder for you to assault the terrorists on a bus on the way to Heathrow? Uh, or would it have been, uh, or, or was it harder to assault the embassy? No, the, the three different options really, um, was the um, what we call the stronghold assault, which is actually the embassy. Now they've got that, they've secured it. We don't know what they've got in there. We, we knew what some, uh, as time went on, we found out the weapons and hand grenades and stuff that they had. Mm -hmm. We didn't know anything about booby traps and stuff. Didn't know if they had any of that type of stuff, not at all. It didn't matter. That was a stronghold assault. The other one would be, the um, open air assault, trying to get them to come out of the out of the um, embassy mm -hmm. to maybe get onto a coach. That means they're going to have to come out into the open, where we've got an assault team ready to assault them, and we've got snipers positioned to take out terrorists. Mm -hmm. That would have probably been quite an easy one to do. The coach option, once they were on the coach in a very small vicinity, right. Yeah, you saw what we did. Yeah. And the thing was, that to us wouldn't have been, we, we, that wouldn't have been the best one either. So the middle option, trying to get them out into the mid, you know, out into open, open air, if you like, with all the hostages coming out and the terrorists dotted around, we've got snipers, and we've got the assault team waiting to assault and rescue the hostages. That would probably have been our favorite option. But after proof of murder, when they murdered Lavasani, okay, yep. when, when that happened, it changed. And Max Vernon's voice is a whole new ball game now, Salim, Salim being the leader of the terrorists. That's right. He, he knew that. He knew that. So we would have probably at the time take out uh, the open air option, as I say. Stronghold assault, nobody really wants to go into a stronghold that's being held by terrorists and stuff, unless you have to. It forced our hand in the end. Mrs. Thatcher didn't muck around. Once there was proof of murder, that was it. You were going in. Handed, yeah. Over, yeah. handed over from the police to the SAS. And the police then are actually supporting us. Um, there were a number of moments where you were you were ready to breach uh and uh and storm the embassy 
at, again, at least in the film, they show you ready to, to kind of go through that door time and time and time again. And each time you're, caught, you're told to stand down um, and you're chomping up a bit to get in there. Yeah, that's it. You know, after six days, uh, we were ready. Um, either way, if they were going to give themselves up and come out, um, we were ready to, to go perfectly. We had everything that we could do. I don't think there was an awful lot left we could have done that we hadn't looked at and tried to, you know, even build in all the rooms, room by room, to figure out which way doors open and obstacles. Mm -hmm. It's not like the real thing, but it wasn't wasted. It was time well spent, and a lot of it came into use when finally we did have to go and rescue the hostages. And you, there was you even spent time uh, studying the faces of the terrorists, just just staring at those pictures and trying to to remember the faces of the terrorists. Uh, in the film, they were showing how how much you concentrated on you know the, the that, that that with the two teams we had the red and the blue team I was blue team and we had red team <clears throat> so when we were in there and had these photo fit boards made up for each what they had terrorist picture on there maybe with a shamag round him mm -hmm. um, then underneath that would be weapons um, scorpion maybe submachine gun handgun grenades so you look at each one and we know there's some female hostages and we know there's some male hostages so i wasn't too bothered and i won't say i never took any notice of the females because i knew there wasn't any female terrorists mm -hmm. so mine was concentrating on these six terrorists with these photo fit you know probably a four size paper mm -hmm and something like that with a picture of them on there good picture and then a little bit speaks perfect arabic and speaks english all built up with the weapons at the bottom so my job and an individual i didn't say to any of my guys and they didn't rusty you better go and have a look at them boards no individual responsibilities get on there and keep clocking as much information as you can because you might need it and it's the only way you're going to get a look at anything. Mm. Part of the planning and preparation, as we call it, and we have the seven Ps, you know, prior planning and preparation prevents piss poor performance. And it's all part of that, right? <laughs> um, and it's a good one to remember um, because it's individual. Nobody can make me do that. And I can't say to my mates, hey, but get back over there and they do it themselves. This is part of their motivation. This is part of what they're set up to do. This is where the training exercises that we do, you know, um, come into it because it's all reality training. Now it's an operation and you're going to have to use it for real. And then you get the opportunity finally to go in. Um, as you said, uh, Margaret Thatcher um, gives the order. Uh, and, and, you know, from the beginning of the film, it's made clear that, you know, that uh, Britain is not negotiating with terrorists. They will never leave uh, British soil alive um, and or, or at least captured. Uh, and uh, you guys, you know, as soon as they end up killing a hostage, you guys are given the green light and you go in. 
And then after all that training, um, you call it Saad's law, we call it Murphy's law. Um, yeah. Things don't go as planned initially, right? It, uh, we planned, we planned everything, but we, we call it actually is another one for you. We call it what ifs, okay? And what ifs, and you've got your plan. What if such and such? Now there are sometimes things you have to do yourself as part of your team. We know with the assault team, snipers will have what ifs for themselves because I did all eventually. I did sniping, I did the assault team, and I did the ops manager, ops um, manager. Of, counter-terrorist team. So I've done them all, but on this particular one, I was on the assault team. Mm -hmm. Oh, what ifs, what if such and such. But you can't say what the what ifs are. We've covered them in the plan, but you know, what if the rope snags up and somebody gets burnt on the very floor where the hostages and the terrorists are supposed to have the biggest, you know, form of the two, right? right in the center of the building, okay? You've got the ground, you've got the basement, ground floor, first floor, second, third floor. They're in the middle of the building. And of course, the very floor is where the guys got hung up and were burning on the ropes. Oh. Yeah, so what if? Well, they had their own what ifs. They finally cut him down, but you lose a bit of momentum. You know, because the big bang has gone off. And, right. But the communications were crap, I've got to say. So <laughs> you didn't actually know quite what was happening on the other side of the building, inside the building. But what you did have, you had your own job. And our job was the ground floor. Um, because you enter as many entry points as you can simultaneously. Mm -hmm. If you get hung up on one, you've still got guys going in somewhere. Okay. Nope. Send everybody through the same window. It won't work. So we're every floor at the same time and multi-entry multi points, very important because you want to get in there and do your job and clear as fast as you can um, and gain that momentum um, and initiative back. And the one thing to remember, the mission was to rescue the hostages. Nothing else. Rescue the hostages. Right. And, you know, there's so there's a scene in the film and obviously, you know, there's so much chaos going on in there, you know, especially <clears throat> now there's a fire, there's smoke everywhere. Um, you know, one, you know, a couple of your guys are burned up, uh, but they're still in there. And, you, you're, you know, you, you, you've killed a number of the terrorists and you guys are clearing them out of the building. You're clearing them out of the embassy, um, bringing the hostages uh, down the stairs, bringing them down the stairs, and then and you're there, and you 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 grabbing each. It looks like you were grabbing each hostage before you let them go to look at them. You put your hand. I mean, you if you see me going into the building with no gloves in, I've got one hand there, right? Have you ever seen that the black and white photo where I go in at the beginning? That's your, that was your nickname, no gloves. That's right. So, <laughs> For me, I've got one hand ready normally to do something with, if, you know, it's just part of my training. Mm -hmm. and my hand is up there ready just in case and do something with it. I, I know that I can shoot with one hand, okay? Right. Not a problem. And it's only that if you want to put it back. But the fact was that everybody who came down the stairs, 
we didn't know fully where they were and where they started from at the top but we've got guys on the fourth floor third floor second floor first floor us my group on the ground floor and a basement four guys mm -hmm. did the basement so you're talking about 34 guys maximum who actually entered that building on the go 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 to to clear it it's not like the russians where they send in hundreds of guys who've got no command and control mm -hmm. with total command and control of everything we're trying to do in there the guy coming down the stairs in with everybody else i suppose you're going to come on to him in a minute yeah my job and the other guy's job if you can't see them you've got to turn them and you remember i said you're studying all those pictures yes and i'm i'm pretty good at facial recognition um and you and, and you're trying to get them out of the building as quickly as you can you're right there was smoke there was flashbangs there was gunfire there was gas in the air because we use gas um that's why we had respirators on and yep. we're training them so we're comfortable in them but you still know there was 19 hostages and you know there's six terrorists right everybody coming down the stairs in panic they're not looking at rusty they're looking to try and get out of the building right quickly as they can and we're helping by pushing them down to the next guys you could say forcibly but fair <laughs> <laughs> yeah everybody. it was intense treat, treat everybody the same the idea is it was burning and it wasn't a pretty sight inside so you know again this this is a bit like pandemonium these people are freaking <clears> out you're grabbing them you're, you're you know you tell them get the f out get the f out get the f out um and there's a scene in the film where again you're glancing at each one and you grab and you grab one of the guys as they're coming down the stairs um that could very well be a hostage and it's very dramatic in the film where they show you through the respirator staring at this guy's face and then I guess upon recognizing that this is a terrorist, you gun him down right there in place. Um, and it turned out he had a grenade in his hand. I don't know if you knew that or not, and that's why you yeah. gunned him down, or you just yes. recognized his face. But no, is that how it went down? That's that's exactly how it went. Um, the the where I was in the stairwell was my command and control. I was in charge, um, and I could see down. I could see out the back. And I could see up the stairs to the first floor. I had some help by people shouting and pointing fingers. But I couldn't hear a word they were saying, you know, John and them, John Mack and a couple mm -hmm. of others. It, you know, I could see that they meant business. There's something happening down where we are that maybe they've seen from the top. And they're trying to alert us. They say the communications, forget them. <laughs> Radios, no, 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 not a chance. So I just clocked what he was doing. But then there was bodies and the one guy everybody else wanted to get out and the one guy faisal who was the second in command found out later of the um of the terrorists he was mixed in amongst them i was alerted slightly by up the top but they were coming down towards me anyway they weren't going upstairs they were coming down so when I got rid of a couple of the hostages, the one guy who was looking over the banister rather than concentrating and getting out of the building, mm -hmm. 
could see quite clearly they had these um, olive green jacket on. Like a, we, we call them combat jackets in that day. It was the old type, olive green, no camouflage. Mm -hmm. um, and when I grabbed him, it was his turn. When I grabbed him and turned him round, the mate behind me, Snapper, he, he, he actually seen it as well. And the grenade was in his hand. Didn't know if the pin was in or not, it didn't matter. It's a weapon, it's dangerous. So that's when you see me let go of him. My mate hit him on the back of the head because he couldn't get his weapon round. It's a bit of a thud, but at the same time, I just fired um, two bursts of um, gunfire from the MP5 into him, and he fell to the bottom of the stairs, and the hand grenade drop rolled out, which I picked up later on. The pin wasn't in. The pin was in, sorry. Right. Go off. Um, it, was, it was that quick. So it's a, it, it, I mean, it's an incredible story. Um, all the all the hostages were rescued, um, which you know is a fantastic result. Uh, five out of the six terrorists killed. Uh, one of them, one of them put in prison for life. Although I can see he got out in two thousand and eight. Um, but uh, just just an inc an incredible success. And all of a sudden, the SAS. Um, you know, who was previously always operating in, in the shadow, so to speak, is now on the world stage. Um, is that, you know, was the SAS well-known? Uh, was it in the public eye before this? Uh, or did this really put you guys uh, in the spotlight? It, um, it changed. The operation itself changed the SAS. Um, it wasn't particularly well known before that. Um, they did a lot of operations and stuff throughout the war, Second World War. They did the Great Battle of Mobat in 1972, which was a secret war. Nine guys fought off two, three hundred um, of the Adu, you know, the bad guys. Mm -hmm. um, but there was, wasn't a lot see social media changed would have changed everything mm -hmm. wasn't any so let's say the SAS was known here say at hip level all of a sudden with that one operation it went way above your head and everybody knew who they were and what they were what they were capable of doing hence all these foreign um, training teams wanted the Brits to go and train them in counter-terrorism me included i went out to train people as well so it did it rose it rose to a different level and i'm convinced i, I know that the siege is still talked about today okay it took 37 years to get a film out on it but that is where the awareness of what it was changed um, not long after, uh, I mean, the security was really bumped up on the camp, everything. And it was all down to um, the operation that was a success, a success which was um, Operation Nimrod. And that really raised right. the And, uh, you know, I can tell in speaking with you um, that you're, you're extremely passionate about what, what you've done and it's clear how much you loved it and enjoyed it um it's very clear 
but you've all, you've also, you also present a different side. You know, I've read a lot, um, uh, you know, interviews with you and, um, some of your book, the regimen and, uh, uh, you had some, you know, and I've, and some of the, I've, I've listened to some of the podcasts you've been on, but I, I'm going to quote here from the sun, um, where you, uh, you know, you were commenting on the siege, uh, all these years later. And you said, we had a job to do, and we just wanted to do it. We had been waiting and planning for six days. So when we heard the explosion and the go, 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 we were like coiled springs. All they wanted to do was get in there and rescue the hostages. And I was supposed to be playing in a football cup final that day. So I just wanted to get home. (laughs) So That's a true story. But, you know, the the, the thing is today – Okay, that team was called Westfields Football Club. Right. A, the manager to this day is still the same manager, Andy Morris. He's still the manager, and I should have been playing at Kidderminster Harriers up in the West Midlands in the cup final. The good news is his brother stood in for me and scored the winning goal. <laughs> it all worked out. It all worked out, mate. But, but is, is, was part of your success and is part of a elite special operator success. The fact that they, you know, look to me looking at this, it's exciting. It's adventurous. Um, I love to read about, I love to talk to special operators like yourselves who have done such incredible things for their country. Um, But that, you know, that's to us looking, looking at you guys and your achievements. But for you is part of your success. The fact that, uh, special operators, or is it just yourself? Look at it as just a job and a job that just needs to get done. I, I call it, I still call it a day job. It was my day job. What I did. <laughs> it took a long time to get there. Okay. It was a day job, and that's exactly why I quote nowadays. I don't make any, any big deal about it. They say, oh, legend this. And I say, no, I'm a legend. You know, <laughs> It's all, it's been and gone. Mm-hmm. People are so passionate about some of the stuff that goes on this day and age. You know, we showed them what can be done. Um, yes, terrorism has changed. Mm-hmm. It hasn't. But it was my day job. And it was the lad's day job. It came with us on that. Don't forget there was another bunch of good guys on that job. And everybody did the business they were supposed to do. Yeah, I mean, in your in your book, um, you say that you, you, to quote you, you said, "I wasn't a secret agent or a Superman. I was a soldier and a fucking good one. So were most of the guys I served with." Yeah, I can't. I, I, I can't be changed. That is the truth. So, what? So, what? differentiates you, Rusty. Um, Not everyone could do the job that you do or that you did. Nor you. But I can't, I couldn't be a vehicle mechanic because I can't do that either. (laughs) Okay. But, but clearly, you know, there are some very unique differentiators about yourself. Um, And it would be, I, I think, really important to understand 
um, how someone like you is built. Um, what makes you different? In your opinion, what makes you different? What makes you unique? Well, as I say, um, growing up wasn't easy. Um, no real parents, being school to school to school, passed around um, different parts of the family to look after me. And really, I didn't have a, a figure to look up to. You know, I didn't have anybody. So I was left, you know, I started work, <laughs> I think I was 11 or 12, um, writing newspapers out in them days at five o'clock in the morning so mm -hmm. they could be delivered. And when I started doing that, it, there was no, there was nobody ever said, well, well done to Rusty. Nobody, mm -hmm. nobody. Okay, it wasn't until I did the Duke of Edinburgh's award, um, the bronze award, way back, that I realized that I was capable of doing more. I, I was going downhill, okay, but I got through that hurdle. Whether I'd gone in the army or not, would I still be the same guy? I don't know. But once I got through that hurdle of somebody saying, well done, I thought, well done, Lord. yeah. And that's how it started. And from that, I've built, but I've got a passion for the country I, I live in. Mm -hmm. And certainly since I've come out the the, uh, the army, the regiment, if you like, um, I've found that there's, there's always something more you can do. It's how much you want to do that extra. And that's why we always say, always a little further. You might see that quote from me very often or who dares win mm -hmm. got to put yourself up there i haven't got anybody pushing me it's just rusty <laughs> and if anybody else i know a few other guys around who are doing that some some don't mm -hmm. it's up to them but from my beginning i've had to work for everything i've got i haven't been given anything but i've enjoyed it and I think if I had my time again, I'd go back and do it just I'd go back and do it again, considering I didn't ever want to go in the army in the first place. Incredible. What, um, so what kind of a mindset does it take for someone to do what you've done, for someone to be a part of the SAS? What kind of mindset must you have so that because again, it could be tricky. Like you said, you know, I guess by the time you got to the SAS, you were already all in. So, but you know, for anyone contemplating. You can't go straight into the SAS from civilian. Right. You have to have done um, a couple of years in, in the military somewhere. Right. Not just volunteers as a civilian. So anybody who wants to go into the SAS, first of all, has to volunteer. But uh, the civilian walking down the road can't just say, oh, I'm going into this, I'm going on selection. That won't happen. Mm -hmm. So have the basics, uh, basic training and everything else before you go there. You can't learn it there, okay? And you'll be found out within minutes, which would be unfair, because it might be a guy that might be some good, but he needs to go into a unit, maybe the para, maybe the commandos, maybe an infantry unit, it doesn't matter. They came from all over intelligence mm -hmm. corps. You know, that's why they've got such a cross um, section when you're planning. You've got engineers, you've got artillery guys, 
You've got all these brains in the same room making a plan. They're not all infantry, they're not all paras, they're not all commandos. They've got a big cross-section infantry, as I say, you know, intelligence corps, vehicle mechanics. They've all passed selection, but they've all had a ground in, in their own personal um, before they ever tried it. And there isn't many people trying selection after two years. They, they normally, um, you know, it would be a bit difficult, certainly when I was doing it. Um, so, they, you know, you have to do your own homework first and then put that voluntary bit where you go, I'll sign the form, I'm volunteering. But you said, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay. Sorry. You said, so you, earlier on in the conversation, you mentioned that so much of this is psychological. Yeah. And so that's what I want to kind of understand from your perspective. Again, what what is the frame of mind? What is the reference point? What is the 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 mindset that someone has to have? Doesn't matter, you know. Now, okay, so they've been in um, the military now, and they're volunteering for the SAS. Most of them are going to wash out, as we know. Only ten percent are going to make it. What is what? What is it that that ten percent of a very few actually have psychologically as an advantage? Well, if it's anything like me, not everybody's the same. We all know that, but nothing else mattered for me. I had the goal of I volunteered. I've signed the form. I'm here. Mm -hmm. I want to pass. And whatever I have to do to get through that course, I'm going to do my very, very best. But the sacrifices, if you're married, you may have to pay a sacrifice. I wasn't married at the time. I was single. So I didn't have any, any, anything behind me to worry about. Mm -hmm. What I had was a goal in front of me. And that goal was to succeed. And my, 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 my brain wouldn't do anything else. The fear of failure. Wow, I didn't want that hanging over me ever. And everything I went for, I did. And everything I thought about, I tried to get up there to be one of the very best. And only that way of thinking, in my opinion, from what I've done, is that's how I went about it. But for me, I passed. Some very good guys who got injured, as you can expect on a course like that, they came back and they passed a second attempt and stuff. I don't know if I'd have come back, if I'd have failed that course to do it again. I don't know. But what I did know is I didn't want to fail. And I think that is primary to how I got through because I shut off everything. Okay, I was there on time. I wore the right kit. I looked after myself. I was fit. Okay, I knew I could get injured. Of course you can, but I didn't. And at the very end of it, when they gave me a burying belt, I wondered what, <laughs> what the big deal was all about in the first place. And I did, you know, you come off that high, got your burying belt there, great. Mm -hmm. Exactly what I want. But then, I don't know, you just come down then, and you're now part of the team. And the team is the SES, where you're going to learn year after year, or if I, you know, you can get booted out of the SAS at any time, and I've seen it happen mm -hmm. um, for different reasons. And the, the fact is that 
mine, you know, I just wanted to, to get on with what I went there to do and did. And I came away without many injuries. I've, I've injured myself more down here than I ever did in the. <laughs> tell you that now. That's so, my mindset. My mindset was that. Nothing else. I have found um, in interviewing high achievers over the, the course of my career, I have found that, uh, and I often ask this question, um, but you actually answered it um, for yourself, which is, I find that one of two things drives a high achiever, and that is either the, just the infatuation with the idea of winning, which yeah. drives them to do whatever it takes or, or the, the, the absolute hatred of losing mm. one of they're yeah. both powerful motivators. And for most people, we're, we're all, anyone who's an achiever, it's a mix of both, but there's yeah. always a stronger driver. So I guess for you, it was, you, you would do whatever it takes so that you didn't walk away a loser. Well, let's, let me tell you what I found out afterwards. My name, surname is Fermin. Okay. It comes from Ferminus, which is partly French. I'm not a French speaker. But what does it stand for? I'll tell you what it stands for. Steadfast and resolute. <laughs> and I think that, seriously, it, it does. When I found that out years and years ago, I thought, that's me. I don't know if you agree. That is fact, steadfast and resolute. And I'd like to think I am. Mm. Yeah, uh, I mean, standing, you know, standing like a rock in the face of whatever it takes to get something done. Exactly. But a day job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, look, everybody, everybody fails. Um, it happens. But yeah. not everyone has that pure, like, hatred. Um, of having to live with failure such that it will push them to be successful and do whatever it takes to be successful. So it's not so much that it's a pro that it's bad to fail. We're human. We all fail, but it's how you look at it and how it drives you or the opposite. Of course, as I said, many people uh, view it more. They're more interested in achieving the medal, achieving the trophy, achieving the accolade, achieving the mission and that's what drives them. It doesn't really matter which is the driver, but I've found that in individuals such as yourselves and in high achievers, it's one of the two that are pushing them to go, as you say, a bit further. Always a little further. Always a little further. It's not a big step, but if you keep enough of them, you're gonna get further, always a little further. So after the SAS, Rusty, you, you had a number of really, really wild, uh, and cool and, and, and crazy roles. I mean, you, you've done uh, diamond mine security in West Africa. You've delivered armored cars uh, to CNN news crews during the Kosovo War in Sarajevo. Um, you were security advisor for Mel Gibson while they were making Braveheart. Uh, you, were you were security advisor uh, and a bodyguard for the Japanese embassy in Afghanistan. Like, you've, <laughs> you've um, really done some... I also run the, the, the worldwide, you know, Herbalife. What's that? Herbalife International. Okay, yes. 
I run the security for them outside of America worldwide. They have 50 odd countries then. So all of these weird places and stuff and going into Russia and all them type of job. Yeah, I did that for a number of years. So what, after the SAS, of all the really um, interesting work that you've done, what's, what's been your fa- what has been your favorite um, role since leaving the SAS? What have you enjoyed the most? I've really enjoyed, um, really towards the latter end, really. Um, when they, it, it was fun. All, all the jobs I did were different. And when I was doing the diamond mine, there was 1,400 black uh, guys on there. Mm-hmm. But that was there. That's what they were in them days. And there was myself as a security consultant, along with a diamond mine valuer who's Russian. Right. We had to go and live there, but I ended up helping to train their first division football team. So I was a bit of a hero for them because here I was investigating them at the Diamond All-Stars, the football team, twice a, twice a week I could get in with them. And, um, yeah, seriously, yeah. But I was on my own in the middle of a car. I'm sorry, not a car, 70 miles from a car with no communications to the outside world until the weekend. So they're, they're, they're different, right? But they, the fun ones were to, towards the end, um, getting the film together and helping with the stuntmen and over in New Zealand and meeting Jamie and teaching him to become rusty. And that, that was all fun. So I've done so many, I can't say, I won't put my hand on my heart and say, I wish I hadn't done that. Because, you know, I built the whole, helped build the, um, the airstrip and every, all the security over in, um, in Africa as well for, for um, a big uh, oil company, you know. So I've done all of them and everyone was different, but I've enjoyed them all. Um, uh, they call it scared on some of them, apprehensive, definitely, <laughs> because sometimes when you're on your own, you, you are on your own. Mm-hmm. It's, um, all of it's been, I think, because I want to do a third book. I'm just looking for a bit of help from what I did from leaving the regiment. Um, I want to make sure that I get it together properly. And I want, I'd like to do my third book from 1992 until present because I'm patron of four different charities, okay, as well. So I've put an awful lot of work, as you might have seen, into um, the charity side of life. Yes. Um, so I've done an awful lot of that over the years, helping, you know, raising their awareness. And So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've really been involved in quite a lot. And I've got no intentions unless I have to of stopping that. Because the doctor, when he said, you've got to slow down, I said, if I slow down, I'll die. <laughs> Straight. <laughs> you know, I said, I'm just going to carry on, you know. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. But I've enjoyed it. You know, things like this we're doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's all nice because other people that listen to it nowadays with podcasts and stuff, my wife, she'll be on to this one as soon as she can. You know, um, it, it's actually giving maybe something back. I've taken a lot, mm-hmm. worked hard to get it, but now people are learning, you know, you know, the, the videos I do and stuff. 
Yes. To bring so many good comments and stuff on that. It's, it's worth doing. People, people are enjoying it. And even through lockdown, I've given an awful lot out to people who can't wait for the next one. So yeah. I've enjoyed it. It, and you should, um, because there's a lot of inspiration to find in yeah. not just what you've done, yeah. uh, but the way you portray it. And the, you know, the, again, as I said, you know, a lot of, look, let's be fair. A lot of, a lot of veterans who've done your kind of work come home with PTSD. Um, they have all kinds of issues that they're battling through. Very hard for a lot of the guys these days to transition uh, back to civilian life. And it's always good to hear um, a story from someone. And I don't know if you've ever felt anything like that as well, if you've ever had PTSD or if you've... I've, I've, I've been diagnosed with PTSD in 1990, I think it was four. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about it. But mm -hmm. a psychiatrist got hold of me and he said, yeah. So I went for, for help. Then I was left to self-help to some degree. Mm -hmm. and then for 10 months, I went off the road altogether with... Um, I don't mind admitting uh, anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And I d I've been to charities. I didn't do any work. I wouldn't go out the house very mm -hmm. little. But I never thought it was going to happen to me. But it did. But you know what? I fought through it and it took me 10 months. I don't mind admitting that. But then when I came out of it, anybody who's listening, just have a look over that horizon. I took 10 months to come out of it, but I came out of it. And since that 10 month was what, 2017-ish? Mm -hmm. A bit late, but still it was there. Since I came out, I haven't looked back. And there is hope for anybody if they can put this mind to it. It's, it's there as well. Yeah, we've seen stuff, we've done stuff. The fact is, it can be beaten. I've beaten it. Yeah, that's that's such a that's a, such a powerful testimony, Rusty. And I've done it. And this is the kind of thing. This is you know when you say you know you've taken a lot and now you're giving a lot back. It's it's words like that which I think go a long way to helping people um, <laughs> overcome their anxieties, their fears, and some of the things maybe they've been through uh, as a soldier or as a veteran. See that box there? Uh, yes. You probably can't read it. No. That's medical. And in there, it's full of paperwork. Wow. So trust me, I've been there and I'm back out. And I'm not looking back at that at all. But trust me, for 10 months, nightmare. Absolute nightmare. However, here we are today talking about it. And, and uh, you know, that is probably the most important thing that you can do is to, uh, you know, is to talk about, talk about that, talk about um, your experiences and, you know, to give back, whether you're inspiring someone, whether you're teaching someone, whether you're passing on some of your knowledge, um, it's invaluable. Yeah. yeah, and that's exactly what I'm doing. Yeah, well, we're we're thankful for it, Rusty, and I'm super thankful that um, you've given us given us an opportunity to speak with you today. Um, I'm sure a lot of the the people that listen to our show uh, are going to want to look much further into 
your story and some of your exploits and learn more about you, uh, where can our audience find you? Uh, what are some, you know, do you have social media? Do you have a website that you can direct people to? Yeah, I'm just going to give you, um, first of all, um, bear with me. The first one is, uh, is that right? I'll be right with you. Hang on. Right. The first one is we've got a website. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let me, first of all, let me give you the Facebook page. Okay. Uh, and it's SAS orientated, but you don't have to be. We look at, I'm an admin on it. We look okay. at everybody that wants to come on this. Okay. And we've got quite a lot in a very short period of time. We've got nearly 7,000 already in a couple of months. Wow. So it's called Spe SAS, Special Air Service, Military Collectors and Facts page. Okay. Okay. So anybody who comes to that, they will ask to join. We look at them. They don't need to be military. They may want to see what that type of page does. They could purchase stuff off people. They can look at facts. They can put facts on there. As long as they stay within the guidelines, we don't have any problem. The Walter Mitties that have been on there, we've been them all. It takes us five minutes, <laughs> to, me and Shane, to work them out. Right. The one is where all the videos that are being watched right now, and this has got, it's on its way to um, 11, 12,000. Yeah, I've so, been all over it. Yeah, your yeah. YouTube channel. And it's called Rusty Fermin. Two different words, Rusty Fermin, SAS TV. That's my YouTube channel. Mm. And my website, where you can look at um, a lot of the stuff we've done, is um, www.rusty-fermin.org forward slash shop. You'll see the books on there. Go, go, go. The definitive story of an embassy siege and the inspiration for the film six days and then my other book that takes me through from when i was born all the way through to 1992 when i left the sas is called the regiment 15 years in the sas and you can get them even if you want them posted direct they i sign everything and post them off personally to anybody who comes to my site. If there's nobody else involved in it, it's me. I do it from home. Books are over there, <laughs> the other books are there. So you're getting it direct from me. There are no third parties involved. It's me, I sign and send. And yes, there's an awful lot gone out over the last six weeks, I can tell you that. So that's on there. And the rest, I think you'll be able to reasonably wade through. Anybody wants, um, Rusty Furman goes under his own name. I don't have any aliases on Twitter. I don't have aliases on Facebook. I don't have aliases on um, Instagram. I don't, they're all Rusty Furman. So right. two separate words, okay, Rusty Furman. I'll put, I'll put all, I'm gonna put all of your links up uh, oh. in, okay. our, in our show notes. So when we post it up, uh, we'll include all of the links for any of our audience. Uh, okay, so I didn't realize that. Yeah, but you you only do you're only doing the audio, aren't you? It doesn't do the video. No, we're doing the video. What the one we've just done now? Yeah, yeah. No, this is this is this is all being recorded. So oh, I'd have dressed up for you, mate. No, got, no, we love it. We love the football no, show. Look, that's it. 
football club tonight. They can that- actually win the Premiership tonight. Liverpool. Yeah, they can, yeah. <laughs> Just as if you get beat tonight, then Liverpool have won it. They're already 20 points ahead with a few games to go. It's that they've walked it this year. But I didn't realise, I thought it was just going to be an audio, but... No you've, done, you've, no, you've done great on video, and we're, we're super happy that, uh, that you did the show. Rusty, thank you so much for being a part of this, and I wish you tremendous success. I really hope you write the third book. Yeah. Uh, we'll be looking forward to that. I'm sure there's lots of adventures there for us to kind of uh, delve into. But, uh, yeah, this has been great, and I hope you'll come back on the show again. Oh, anytime, mate.